if you would like, I'm going to be reading three different passages this week and every week of the season of Advent. So we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 2. All of these passages will be on the screen. I'll be in the book of Isaiah, Romans, and Matthew. Um, if you've never been a part of a church that talks about Advent or talks about the liturgical calendar, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, we know that that can be new or foreign to you. Um, you may have seen these things before, an Advent wreath with the candles. You're not really sure what's going on with that. Um, we believe that the church calendar is a useful corporate discipleship tool because it makes you think about things that you should think about, but you probably don't make yourself think about. So these things on our calendars become speed bumps in our lives to pay attention. So I don't particularly look for long seasons of fasting and repentance in my life. I, to be honest, probably try to avoid those things. But when Lent comes, I, it's right in my face, and I'm like, you know what, this is actually good for me. Um, Advent is one of the seasons on the church calendar. This is actually Happy New Year. I don't know if you knew this, but we have our own sense of time and calendar. Advent is the beginning of the church calendar. We're here. It's here. Advent is not like pre-Christmas, okay? So if you're coming here for the next four weeks and thinking, cool, Advent, pre-Christmas time, this is going to be so happy, I have some news for you. Um, Advent is about the coming of Jesus. That's what Advent means, coming, the coming of Jesus. We're actually looking forward and talking about the second coming of Christ. And so what you're often going to hear about is judgment. Merry Christmas. Uh, this is going to be a very natural transition from our series of, on Ecclesiastes. You're going to die. And now we're just four weeks going to talk about you're going to be judged. This is on purpose. The, the kind of biblical figure, the, the motto, the mascot of Advent is John the Baptist. It is prepare yourself. Jesus is coming. And that is good news and it is bad news. It is both of those things at the same time. So you're going to hear that in the passages today and for the uh, coming Sundays in Advent. And I would invite you to consider and listen to what these passages, what this season is trying to provoke in us, in you, and what God wants to do in your life and in mine, our life together. So we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And now 
from the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And finally, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, starting at the 36th verse. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that this is your word, that all of it is your counsel. And God, I pray that you would help us to hear it and to respond. I pray that our hearts would be soft to receive this invitation, that we'd be quick to bow the knee to you, to open our hearts to you. And in you, we would find perfect peace. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, I, um, I, I said last week that my preference for, for preaching um, is to, to start in a book of the Bible and kind of plow all the way through. Um, but this, this is using what's called the lectionary. Um, and the virtue of using the lectionary in preaching is that every week you get to hear from the Old Testament, you get to hear from an epistle or a other New Testament narrative, and you get to hear from the Gospels. You get to hear from the full um, counsel of Scripture, even if it's just in, in little bites. And here you can probably hear why these passages are stitched together, why these themes are going together. Um, this chapter in Isaiah chapter 2 uh, presents this really lovely picture of, of Jerusalem, of the city of God becoming the place where God dwells not with just Israel, but with all peoples. And all the peoples of the earth uh, make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And uh, there's this incredible peace there. All of the instruments of warfare are mis, uh, misshapen, reshaped into instruments of harvest, of sowing and reaping. And there's no more conflict there. There's no more war. It's a, it's a place of perfect peace. And that's, uh, that's an incredibly uh, 
powerful and appealing image, this language of uh, having the swords beaten into plowshares and spears into prune hooks. Uh, this leaps out of the scriptures and into other people's vocabulary, even if they don't really have anything to do with scripture. But this idea of, of our weapons being melted down into something that is not at all meant for, for harm but only good is, is a lovely, lovely vision. And it is certainly in keeping with the vision and trajectory of scripture. Um, the, the final vision of what God does in the world is this picture in the book of Revelation that God dwells with his people and there is no more mourning. All, all of the, the wrongs have been righted and all the wounds have been healed and every tear is wiped away. And yet right here in this passage in Isaiah chapter 2 is this, this inclination that this cannot be divorced from judgment, that something must be done and is actually intrinsic to that peace that comes. You can't have a kind of peace with God or with anybody which is just the mere cessation of hostilities. It is, it is not enough to stop throwing rocks at one another. That is not the full vision of peace that God has uh, both spoken into creation and speaks to as the destination. The vision of peace, of, of wholeness, of shalom, of things being made right is much larger than that. And that requires a kind of judgment so that when the peoples in Isaiah chapter 2 are rushing to Jerusalem, they are rushing towards judgment. The nations are, are, are running towards the teaching of the law of the, the king of Israel. They are rushing towards God, deciding between the nations, sorting out what is right and what is wrong. And for us, uh, this strikes as strange news to our ears. For many people, you come into a place like this uh, to hear news that judgment is no longer an issue. That God doesn't actually want anything to do with judgment. That God has actually gotten himself out of the judgment business. Once we have turned the page out of the Old Testament, whew, now we don't have to worry about God being so judgy anymore. But that is not the vision of the scriptures, either the Old or the New Testament. And that is not to say that God doesn't care about the peace that is in this elevated and central place of Jerusalem, it's saying that there actually cannot be a divorcing between judgment and peace. Those things are meant to go together. And in fact, the New Testament scriptures are, are bidding Jesus' people to live in light of this reality. What Paul says in Romans chapter 13 is that the day of salvation, and, and clearly he means this kind of salvation, because he's already at that point in his letter talked about how you personally uh, might encounter and receive salvation from God. He's talking about the full revelation of God's salvation in the world where, where this happens, where people might live in peace and harmony with God and with one another. That day is coming. We are Every day, moving closer to that day, we are, he says, uh, in between the darkness of a full night and the brightness of the day. We are living in the gloom of the in-between times. 
And he says, now, in light of that being true, you cannot live the same way now that you did then. Something must change. In fact, everything must change. So no longer put on the works of this old world that is dying away. He, he in this passage, lists orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and things like that. But the list is, you know, we know, far longer. You can throw a lot of things on there other than sexual immorality and sensuality and drunkenness and orgies. Because some of you might look at that and say, I have never had an orgy. I don't even remember the last time I was in a drunken revelry. I am, I am killing it. Well, the, the, this is a sort of representative list, right? That the habits and the behaviors of the old world are quite long. If you read Romans chapter 1, earlier in the book, Paul gives a much more detailed list of what it looks like to live in idolatry and away from God. Going all the way down to things like disrespecting your parents. It's a long list. And Paul says you can't clothe yourselves in those things. Which you, you who are saying you follow, follow Jesus, you should put on the armor of light. You should, in fact, put on Christ. You carry in your own body and in your own life the sign that that day is coming. And you have to live now like that day which is not here actually is here. Jesus' story in Matthew chapter 24 is, is perhaps the scariest of all of them. People kind of miss this about, about Jesus there's wonderful, wonderful, lovely things that Jesus says that are so soft and gentle and kind. And like, Jesus is the scariest person in the Bible. If you read everything that he says, he says things that, that will absolutely shock you and jar you. This is one of those stories. This is a long section in the Gospel of Matthew where he is saying a lot of things. But he, he presents this image and he says the world now is, will be like the way the world was when Noah was around. If you don't know the, the story of Noah, Noah is in the book of Genesis. Things are really bad in the world. So bad it says that, that God was grieved that he had made man. And he is ready to just cleanse the whole world with a flood to just flood everything. And instead of everything and everyone, he saves Noah and his family and sweeps the rest away and wipes it clean. And Jesus says, the days of the return of this second advent of, of the sun will be like that. And what he says, the way that it's like that is that there will be people who are completely ignorant of the danger they are living in. And there will be a rushing in of judgment unexpectedly. You know, there's this image of uh, two people walking up a hill and then suddenly one is gone. I, I always, when I was growing up, read that in a very uh, charismatic end times rapture context. It's like, whoa, look, half these people got raptured. Isn't that scary? Um, it's scarier than that, actually. That's not what Jesus is talking about. 
The people who are swept away in Noah's day, the people who disappear in his little parable, are the people being swept away into judgment. And he says, it is like that there is a, a sudden coming upon of your house of a thief. You don't know when the thief is coming. If you did, you would never be burgled because you knew they're coming. And Jesus says, that's what the return of the Son of Man is like. That, that is alarming. That is, that is troubling. Jesus said that. And we cannot, should not, take away the sharp edges of Advent because of our discomfort with these words of warning. We should not say, well, this is not my favorite. So Jesus didn't, that wasn't the real Jesus. This, is, this makes me uncomfortable. This doesn't fit in with what I thought of God. If that's kind of your reaction to these sort of passages, uh, let me ask you to just pause with that feeling. Because what's, what's entirely possible is that your perception and my perception of God is flawed. It, it's true. You, you and I might read this and say, that's just not quite what I thought God would be like. And that's kind of the point. That, that is both the danger and the invitation of Scripture. It's because the Scriptures are going to reveal God to you and not your perception of God. And if when you open the Scriptures, you only ever find a God there who fits precisely in the box that you've constructed, you do not worship God. You worship you. A bigger one, maybe even nicer and more powerful, but it's you, bigger. And so, I, I, I mean, I confess to you, when I, when I read scriptures like Matthew 24 and Romans 13, I experience the angst of what, what am I being invited to contemplate here if what I'm being told is that there is judgment coming. There's judgment at the coming of the Christ. And, and let's be clear here, this is not some sort of fringy, weird obsession. The belief that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead is, a, is an elemental, creedal, central doctrine of Christian faith. It is in the Apostles' Creed. It is in the Nicene Creed. It is there in, in the entirety of Christian writings. Jesus has risen and ascended and will come again to judge the living and the dead. And that is not some confession that, that you are meant to hear and to, to write and, and to confess and lob at those people over there. But the, the Son will come to judge the living and the dead, mostly those people. But Christians confess it because we're saying he will come to judge the living and the dead, and I am one of them. My life is under his examination. 
But now, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus is the rightful ruler of heaven and earth, and I am subject to his authority. And so the, the things that, that are the natural cravings of my fractured soul, the, the bending and twisting of my own internal life, these things ought to come more and more under the lordship of Jesus. And, and that my inability, my refusal even, to fall under his rule and reign is a real problem. And my, my fear is that if the church stops figuring out how to talk about this, we will undermine the fullness of the very good news because there is some real good news here. I, I believe in the power and in the virtue and the benefit of going to counseling, of dealing with the emotional wounds and traumas that life naturally inflicts upon you. My mom is a counselor and I would never look at her and say, you should quit your job. I send people to counseling all the time. You all should be in counseling. I've been to counseling. It's great. But my fear is the only thing that we can think of God is that he's basically a large counselor. And he's not. He's a wonderful counselor. It's one of his names. doesn't mean that, but it is one of his names. We are a people in the mess of sin. We, we do not just have our, our struggles, our wounds, our traumas. We are in the, a people in the mess of sin. And God is very clear-eyed about that in all of the scriptures. In fact, it is why they misunderstood who Jesus was. Because they wanted Jesus to deliver them from every enemy except that one. So when Jesus failed to take up the sword against the Romans, they thought he was failing them. And what they did not understand was that he came to make war on that which was their chief enemy. The reality is that we live in a world enmeshed with, entangled with, and muddied by the power and the influence of sin. And that does not stop once you come inside a church. It does not stop when you wear the name Christian. And if you are in here under the delusion that this is a bunch of people who think themselves perfected, well, I would like to introduce you to me, a Christian. I know the truth. They probably know the truth. All of us understand we are not a room of the perfected. We are a people still in the grips of, still dealing with the realities of sin in our lives. And what the scriptures are going to continue to call you to is don't be deceived. Don't get complacent. Don't fall asleep in the gloom of this half-light and think that you don't have to wrestle with sin anymore. You do. Stop gratifying the desires of your flesh and calling it whatever you want to call it. Live in light of the full day. That is sin 
likely that you are wrestling with. And you will give an account for your life before God. You will. Every person will. Now, some people hear those, that passage and they're saying, this is news to me. I was told the gospel was basically a get-out-of-jail card, and I didn't think I had to worry about this stuff anymore. Great. I'm here to interrupt that lie for you. You do have to worry about sin. The, the gospel is not just a behavioral pass for everything. And no matter how holy you can make it sound, if it is sin, it is sin, and you ought to deal with it. And if you don't care that you sin, then you should be worried. If you're just saying, this is just the way that I am, this is just what I want to do, that's a problem, and you should be concerned. But there is another set of people who hear this news, and they are terrified. Jesus' story sounds like a threat. You're saying, I'm a church person, I, do all the, I believe the right things, I'm pretty sure that I do. And now I'm reading Matthew chapter 24, and I'm saying, what if I'm the one that gets disappeared? I thought I was fine, but now I'm very afraid that I am not. And this is the full vision that you need to have when you read these passages. Because you are meant to hear this, understanding clearly the nature of who God is. You're not supposed to be reading these passages and thinking, I really hope when I get to see him face to face that he's going to be okay, you know? Like the curtain's not going to be pulled back and it's going to be the worst Wizard of Oz ever. And I'm in the worst trouble ever. You're not meant to be living in, in fear that, that Zeus off in some mountain is going to send a lightning bolt because you finally crossed that final line that you didn't even know was there. You are not meant to read this passage and be unsure of who the God is that is going to judge you. Because he showed you who he was. You are meant to read these passages through the cross. The cross becomes your lens, and it doesn't tell you, well, good news, God doesn't judge anymore. The cross is telling you that God does judge. The cross is God's stake in the ground that he is absolutely committed to judgment because he intends to fully destroy sin and death. He has not forsaken that quest. He is absolutely the God who will judge sin with absolute holiness and perfection. And the divine anger will pour itself out on all of sin and death. But when you read it through the cross, you hear this news combined with the proclamation from Jesus' own lips that it is finished. That the God who judges can be your atoning sacrifice. That the God who renders judgment is not just the judge, but he is himself the full reception of the penalty of his own judgments. 
And so when you, as a Christian, hear this news that you are called to live a life of holiness in light of the real and true reign of Jesus, the fear of judgment, John says in his letters, is removed. Now you don't have to be afraid of judgment. Now you open yourself to judgment because you know that this God wants you to be free. He wants you to be free. He wants you in Isaiah 2 with him. He wants you to be living in the city, in the light of his face, at peace with God and at peace with man. You don't have to read Matthew 24 and be afraid that you'll be the one that's disappeared. You need to read Matthew 24 and see the cross and know that God has publicly displayed his intention to judge you in light of the Son. And to render you free from the penalty and the purchase of sin. So now, as a Christian, instead of reading Matthew chapter 24 and Romans 13 and just being afraid, you can turn to this God full and free and say, I don't even know the depths of my own heart. My own wickedness still surprises me. I am frankly astonished at the things that come out of my heart, out of my mouth, into my mind. I barely know myself. And instead of being afraid of that, I can turn to God, say, judge me. Show me. Free me from all of this stuff that is my enemy, that will destroy me. Judgment no longer becomes alarming. It becomes a word of freedom. Isaiah chapter 2 is not a mixture of good news and bad news. It is just good news. This is the surprising news. You think that judgment is the thing that God would turn from. The good news is actually better than that. It is the good thing is delivered through the judgment of God. And so we are people now, as Christians, sitting here and saying, Come, Lord Jesus. Please come, Lord Jesus. Please come judge the living and the dead. Please come and set things right. This world is so broken and so full of the fracturing of sins. People have so many hurts that come from sin between one another, caring about in their own body. This world has so many systems that are broken and fractured by sin. People who appear innocent, who are innocent, trampled by the strong, the weak, who are ripped apart by the greed of another. Come, Lord Jesus. Just come, Lord Jesus, and, and bring your judgment. Please, come, Lord Jesus, and make this world right. Come, Lord Jesus, and make me right. Make it so that I, I can stop a life of perpetual conflict trying to decide, am I the worst person right now or am I actually the innocent person right now? Just resolve this conflict. Judge that in me so I'm finally free of me. Come, Lord Jesus. The announcement of God's judgment this time that we are between these two times, we are between the darkness and the light, explains our experience. It makes sense of a world that is senseless. It makes sense of a world that is so inscrutable to us. And you don't have to face any of it afraid of God.
You never have to worry that God is the one who is actually opposed to you. Unless you insist on facing the darkness of the world on your own terms. Now, if you face the world that is in need of judgment and you take God not as your friend and your advocate and your sacrifice, then you will find yourself hearing a threat and a warning. And if that's you, if you are here today and you realize that you have lived only for yourself and by your own rule, apart from the advocacy and the ally of God. Even now, I want you to hear this. God is not telling you so that you will stay that way. He does not delight in your squirming and your terror of him. He's telling you so that you will come home to him. He is a trustworthy father who actually wants your good. He is a father who will give you more than you can have the strength or imagination to ask for. If you are bound and entrapped in your own sin, you know you are doing your very best and you cannot get out. That's what it feels like. The father comes to you in kindness and in mercy so that you too could live in his city as his friend, as a son or a daughter, and that all of his judgments will be just and true and good for you. And you too would find yourself free. If you are here today, and you are maybe for the first time afraid of judgment, that God would really and truly come to judge the living and the dead. Look to the cross. God has never hidden his intentions nor his desires towards you. He put them on a signpost and staked them in the ground so that every time you might question or worry or wonder, you might look to the cross and you might understand that this God is himself the one who has said, it is finished. Today our eyes are meant to look to the God who has come and who is coming again. In him is the fullness of our hope. This season we are not going to find our hope satisfied in family or Hallmark movies or the replication of Hallmark movies in our lives or, or the perfection of gifts and decorations and fuzzy light memories and perfect Instagram photos or any of that nonsense. The only thing that our eyes are allowed to fix on for our hope is Jesus. And in Jesus, there is more than enough for you and for me now and forever. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, to set his people free, and to make this world right. And we are the people of Advent. We are hungry for his coming. Look to the cross.
and look to the rising of the sun. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that that even the hard words that seem hard to us are full of good news for us. God, I pray for people who are here today who, um, who, who know you, who, who follow you, and who just not really cared uh, to, to adjust their life or they've been ignorant of, of what they ought to repent and turn away from. And God, I pray that there would be conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit, that they might see that you have a much better way available to them. And that they ought to turn towards you and walk as people of the light. And God, I pray for your people who bear your name, who are afraid of you, who are terrified that they will be disappeared, who are ashamed of their own sin, who feel ensnared, who, would, who are tired of justifying, who are tired of self-investigating. And God, I pray that today they would hear the relief of the gospel, that though we would be judged, we know that our final judgment is assured, and that in Jesus we have the pronouncement of our own freedom. And Father, I pray For all those who are here today who do not know you, who are living a life of self-justification and who cannot, who will never be able to justify themselves fully. And God, I pray that they would see the cross, that they would see the truth, that you've never hidden the fact that you are a God who will judge. And yet the judgment can be rendered in their favor because of the work of Jesus. I pray, God, that you would strip away all other lesser hopes, that all of these crumbly little idols that prop up their life would be washed away, and they would find themselves confronted by the God who made them and the God who will see them at the end and the God who always intended for them to also live with him. And, Father, I pray that they would repent They would turn away from self-justification and they would find in you the full expression of holy love, of judgment rendered rightly. And in you they can find the only avenue towards freedom and life. Lord Jesus, may that be true of all of us. May all our eyes be fixed on you. And we thank you for your patience with us, your kindness towards us, your mercy towards us, that even this word of judgment brings a word of life to your people. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray with the scriptures and with the church. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Maranatha, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.